0: team I would like to welcome you all here this morning as well whether you're here for the first time or a regular attender or member and uh, perhaps we come for different reasons sometimes perhaps you're here with a heartfelt belief in the resurrection of Jesus as your God and Savior or because traditionally go to church on Easter or because at some level you are searching in the midst of doubt and this would be a good Sunday to come so to speak or for whatever reason in between we're glad you are here and our hope in our prayer is that we would experience all of us would experience by faith the reality that Jesus is risen that he is in heaven that he is here through his spirit that he sees and hears all that is going on here, that he knows everything in our hearts, everything in our lives, the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, and that he loves us in it all. He gave his life for us and invites us to know him personally, knowing the power of his resurrection in our lives daily, and being a part of what he is doing in this world to bring change to bring restoration. And with that, I'd like to invite you just to read as I read through Matthew, the last chapter of Matthew, the resurrection chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28. Matthew 28, I'm gonna read the whole chapter. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven And came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, and gave a large, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our Father in heaven, we just pray that you would guide us in our thoughts today, guide our hearts. You know what's in the heart of every single person here. And by your spirit, God, show us what you would want to show us. And do your work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That was written by the Apostle Matthew. He was one of the twelve eyewitnesses to Jesus. Peter, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus who lived with him for three years, says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And that phrase sums up how the scriptures came down to us eyewitnesses, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, eyewitnesses recorded God's interventions in history witnessed by people. That's the scriptures. And as I mentioned last week, the events of this week almost 2,000 years ago, more than any other week in human history, forever changed the course of world civilization. But that would not have happened if Jesus was not risen from the dead. The resurrection, more than anything else Jesus did, shows that everything Jesus said of himself was true and that he was God and could make those claims. And so we read in Romans 1 that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And that Son of God is a phrase which speaks of the same nature as God. There's no greater demonstration of power than power over death. And when we recognize the reality of these historical events and come to Jesus in trust as he invites us, it changes everything. It changes our view of God, ourselves, and our neighbors. As it changed the apostles who went from sadness, they were horrified at the crucifixion, and they fled when Jesus was taken away. But they went to boldness when they saw him risen from the dead And they went about the empire where it cost them their lives, saying God raised him from the dead, and we're witnesses of that. And we read that all throughout the book of Acts. It changed them, and it changes us when we embrace it. So the resurrection, first of all, changes our view of God. And the Gospels say, in effect, that if you want to know what God is like, and who doesn't, Look at Jesus. And John's gospel in particular highlights particular claims that Jesus made for himself that are so unique and radical that only God could make statements like these. Unless, of course, you're crazy. One of the first he made was the prediction of his resurrection. So while he was in the temple early in his ministry to answer his critics as to his authority to drive out the money changers from the temple, He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This past week, the whole world saw the sad images of Notre Dame in flames, which interestingly brought attention for the Louisiana church fires and brought donations for that. And we grieve that as well, but we didn't hear about that quite as much. For the Notre Dame People, for the Notre Dame event that happened and all the fire, people grieve, perhaps in a similar way, the ancient Israelites grieved when they saw their beautiful temple destroyed in the sixth century BC. It was part of their country and identity, a beauty which was intended to reflect the majesty and otherness of God. So the critics say to Jesus, it took 46 years to build this, and you're gonna raise it up in three days? The scriptures say he was speaking of his body. And he was speaking not just of a restoration, a resuscitation, like they will do with Notre Dame and these other churches. They will rebuild them again, and they perhaps will put sprinkler systems in and all, but sooner or later the same thing could happen again. Instead with Jesus, it would be the first tr- it was the first true resurrection, never to die again but glorious and the first fruits, We will follow Jesus with new bodies if we are followers of him. Tanya Marlowe, a British author and theologian, writes, in this world, impossible horrors happen daily. And we just woke up to one this morning in Sri Lanka. Impossible horrors happen daily. Centuries of careful preservation are undone in a day. Beautiful and seemingly permanent things like buildings, marriages, or health disappear overnight, and we are right to lament them. But then she continues. Though we may grieve Notre Dame and all it represents, we look to Jesus, a temple destroyed but impossibly resurrected, renewed, restored with greater glory for all eternity, this is where hope lies. So Jesus' resurrection begins the reversal of all the mess and all the horror that we see in the world. And these kinds of statements are very meaningful to me. As I mentioned last week, I grew up in the faith where I was taught about Jesus and the necessity of believing in him. But during my time in college, After I had said, Here I am, God, do with me whatever you want, I went through periods of significant doubt, which can bother me at times to the present day. The doubt invariably had to do with, has to do with, the reality that we walk by faith, which means that we cannot see what we are believing. Do we ever doubt that? We cannot see what we are believing. We really don't know what the immediate future means. And we're called to live by faith, which is not by sight. The greatest thing which speaks to my doubts, however, is the uniqueness of the Bible generally, and specifically the person, the words, the works of Jesus that we find in the Gospels. They speak the way they speak, the way Jesus speaks about himself, the world, the meaning of life, why we do what we do, why we are here, the obvious evil and suffering in the world, no one ever spoke as he did. And no one sane ever claimed what he claimed for himself, God walking among us. And in my inquiries, in my doubt, I can't get away from that. No matter what your background, where you come from, whatever religious, church, or family experience you have had, good or bad, whatever legacy you inherited, good or bad, whatever suffering or difficulty you may have endured, we cannot get away from ignoring Jesus. We must come to grips with who Jesus is. And that's for all of us, no matter where we are on our spiritual journey. And Jesus says very simply, he who seeks me will find me. So I'd like to look at a few of these claims of Jesus. They speak for themselves, and they say a ton. So in John 6.35, Jesus says, "'I am the bread of life. "'He who comes to me will never hunger, "'and he who believes in me will never thirst.'" Not the, first, not the only time Jesus spoke this way. He also said, "'If any man is thirsty, "'let him come to me and drink.'" Now that may sound like some religious language, but actually Jesus is speaking as our great psychologist. Jesus says that people are hungry and thirsty and obviously not just for pasta and not just for regular food. We are hungry for love because we're made in the image of God, to give and receive love. We're hungry for significance. We wanna know that there is purpose to be here on this earth aside from just getting up in the morning and going to our jobs and coming back. What is the purpose of it all? And we're hungry for security of all kinds. Promises of security, elect presidents. We are made for an environment like the garden where there is no reason to fear. And we know that fear is a basic characteristic of the human condition. And Jesus says, Jesus comes along and says, I can satisfy that thirst. In John eight twelve, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We know the beauty and encouragement of light shining through the clouds after a storm, where the rays come through. We can't help but react to that, and the beauty of that. Many walk in darkness, in uncertainty, in disappointment, in loneliness. And Jesus says, I can expel your darkness and show you the light of life. In John 11, 25 and 26, the famous Easter verses, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? The most formidable obstacle to life, death, which by nature we fear because of the unknown it represents. Jesus says, if we believe in him, we will never die, even if physically we do because the person we are in Christ lives forever. So our dear sister, Sue Sinclair, is with Jesus, as is our brother, Ron Evans, and we will see them again. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is very interesting that much of Jesus' teaching was centered on himself not on things so much as philosophy and ethics, which he did speak about, but on himself. In effect, he says, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to understand your way through life, if you want to know what is true about life, what reality is in a world that increasingly says there is no truth, Amit, Amit, Jesus spoke to the human condition like no other, because he was God and he was human. The recent movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, tells the story of the British rock group, Queen, and its lead singer, Freddie Mercury. In case you're not familiar with them, they're the ones who wrote the song, we are the champions, remember that song? From the Mighty Ducks? Uh, but it actually came from Queen. Freddie Mercury died in 1991, and he wrote in one of his last songs, The Show Must Go On, he wrote on the Miracle album, he wrote, empty spaces, what are we living for? On and on, does anybody know what we are looking for? Inside my heart is breaking, my makeup may be flaking, but my smile still stays on. Whatever happens, I'll leave it all to chance another heartache, another failed romance. On and on does anybody know what we are living for. Outside the dawn is breaking, but inside in the dark I'm aching to be free. The show must go on. Mercury amassed a huge fortune, had thousands, probably millions of fans, but in an interview shortly before his death he said, You can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man, and that is the most bitter type of loneliness. Success has brought me world idolization and millions of pounds, British pounds, but it's prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. Reality is As much as we were created for human relationships, not even the best human relationships can satisfy entirely and and cannot be completely ongoing. We were made for more for an ongoing, eternal, loving relationship with Jesus, who is living. And because of who Jesus claimed to be, he invited anxious, troubled, lonely, fearful people to relationships. To find rest, to find shalom, to find wholeness in him. And so he says, Come to me. What a statement. All of that is nonsense, ludicrous, if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Michka Esaias is a French author and music journalist who interviewed Bono of U2 fame. And he asked Bono this question, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that far-fetched? And Bono responds, No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but actually, I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh, my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. Bono is describing how Jesus' statements about himself force us into an all-or-nothing choice. He asks, how likely is it that a mentally deranged man on the order of Charles Manson or David Koresh could have produced the kind of impact on his followers and on the world that he has? However, if Jesus was not a lunatic, then our only alternative is to accept his claims and center our entire lives around him. The one thing we have no right to do is to respond to him mildly. And David Koresh was one of those people who claimed to be a Messiah. In fact, he claimed to be the Lamb of God in Revelation chapter 5. David Koresh of the Waco debacle. C.S. Lewis famously said, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If Jesus is risen from the dead, we worship him because he is God and we love him with all of our hearts because he loved us and laid down his life for us and it then changes our view of ourselves. And this is important, because who we think ourselves to be determines how and for what purpose we live our lives. It's all there. Who are we? Without Jesus and his gift of grace being the center of our lives, who are we? Well, perhaps we could sum it up this way. Our ultimate value as people is based on what we do and how well we succeed. We believe that ultimately it's up to us to figure out life, to make it work to the best of our ability, depending on ourselves and also at times depending on others and demanding that others come through for us to make our life work. And we believe we need to protect ourselves from anyone and anything that we perceive could threaten our well-being. And that makes a posture of being authentically other-centered, to love others, very difficult. Because it's all up to us and it's all centered on us. Instead, The resurrection of Jesus offers us another story, a story that all humanity wants, my friends, a story of hope, a story of hope. No one is desirous of living without hope, but the mass of humanity thinks that hope, true, confident hope is not possible. Jesus' resurrection story tells us that as creations of God we have the highest value possible placed on us as human beings because we were made like God no matter what we do, whether we believe in Jesus or not, we have the highest value possibly placed on us because we're made in the image of God. It also tells us that in our failure to love God and people as we ought because of our commitment to ourselves. Jesus loves us and loved us and died for us and was raised as proof that his death paid for all the evil, all the wrong, all the injustice, all the sin with a capital S in the universe. And now he offers us eternal life as new creations, being restored and conformed to the image of Christ. And so 2 Corinthians 5 very famously says, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Now he delights in us and tells us we're his children. And he's our good, good father, as we sing, our heavenly father. And we bow in love before this all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God, and at the same time, we can be so close to him as to rest our head on his bosom as the Apostle John did at the Last Supper. All because of Jesus, who has given us his love, and he has poured out his love in our hearts by the Spirit. The resurrection restores us to our original purpose of why we are all here, to bless others in our spheres of influence, reflecting God, pointing them to him. And significantly, all the gospel accounts of the risen Jesus end with his so-called Great Commission. His mandate to us to advance his kingdom, announcing the forgiveness of sins, the reversal of all the mess that humanity's sin has brought into the world with a view to restoring of all things And the scriptures say, God says, as we follow Jesus, we are partners with God, partners with him in all of that restoration. And he tells us, I have authority in heaven and on earth. What a claim for someone to say, I have all authority. And in your going, make disciples of all nations. And so his resurrection changes our view of our neighbors in the world. It changes our view of the whole world around us, neighbors near and far. So last week, we observed that our journey with Jesus means being sent near and far. 40 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to as being sent. And then he tells us, in one of his most extraordinary commands to us, after his resurrection, where he compares us to him. And he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Think of yourselves that way, my friends, if you know Jesus. We are sent in the same way Jesus was. So let's look at three implications of being sent as Jesus was. John 6.35 says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is that. But we bring people to the table to eat and drink. And I don't know what that will look like for us, what that looks like for you as an individual in the rhythm of your life, or what that will look like for us as a church in the rhythm of our church's life. But in some way, we need to look at those rhythms and we need to make room for bringing people to our table. And that doesn't mean adding on other things to our schedules. It means prioritizing bringing people to our table. To the table, so to speak opportunity to just be with people. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And in extraordinarily, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And speaking of our identity as who we are, that's it. That's who we are. We are light. If we know Jesus, we cannot help but being light. That's who we are. We don't have to ask to be light. It's who we are. The question is, what does that look like to not hide our light where we live? and where we work, and where we travel, and all the spaces that we occupy. What does it look like to not hide our light, but to shine it? John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. What is the primary characteristic that Jesus highlights? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he says in another place, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now, most of us may not look at ourselves as pastors or shepherds. That's what the word pastor literally means. There are people who have these gifts, and we're in the process right now of looking into all that. But everyone in their sphere of influence and callings, wherever they live and work, and all the different callings of life, we, everyone, we are the shepherding hands and feet of Jesus so that people do not lack for provision, for rest, for refreshment, for restoration, and for guidance. That's what a shepherd does. And my friends, that's what makes up authentic community and hospitality. We're in community, And through hospitality and through people welcoming one another, whether that's welcoming someone at the water cooler at your job, welcoming someone in your home, welcoming someone here, wherever it may be, that is what makes up for authentic community and hospitality. And Jesus says, when people see this, they will know that the Father sent the Son and that we are his followers. Extraordinary statement. And in all the other Gospels and Acts, Jesus sends us to all peoples to the ends of the earth so that the world can know the risen Jesus and the hope he brings. And by any count, there's still about two and a half billion people who barely know Jesus exists and who have little access to this Jesus because there are so few followers there among them. And that's what the church is about making him known. And so this is the story, what we're talking about, of how the Christian faith spread so rapidly, and it, you know, it's come down to us in the 21st century. But it's how, this is the story of how the Christian faith spread rapidly, so rapidly in the first three centuries when it was not welcome. Through their faithful love to God and people, followers of Jesus bore witness wherever they went. And interestingly, believers stood out particularly during periods of suffering and sickness and of the epidemics. So we read in his Easter letter from Dionysus, the Bishop of Alexandria, he wrote in the third century during one of these epidemics, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Then we have the emperor Julian in the fourth century who hated the Christians, hated the Galileans as he called them, complained about the recent Christian growth caused by their moral character, even if pretended, and by their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. And Tertullian, who was a church leader from North Africa, he wrote in the third century, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. My friends, that we could have that said of us as the community of Jesus here and around the world. Only look, look how they love one another. They did not do this for a dead religious leader. Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. And to put the question as Jesus did, do you believe this? If so, what change is he bringing into your life presently? Will you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, show us the reality and power of your resurrection, the participation in your sufferings to make you known, conforming us more and more to your image. We pray in your matchless name, amen. We stand together as we close our service and so